just going to read it this one time, just kind of uh, digest it as one group of verses, and then let's take a look at what the Lord uh, would have us understand here this morning. Galatians chapter 4, starting with verse 21. Verse 21, it says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was uh, he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem from above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him, was born according to the Spirit, even so is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Let's pray again. Lord, we just ask for the wisdom of your spirit. Lord, may I decrease, may your word and your word alone and the faithful witness of Jesus Christ be all that is heard here this morning. May your word be magnified, understood. May it touch each heart and each ear exactly as you would desire. It's in your name we pray. Amen. What does it mean to, you see the title up on the slide, what does it mean to choose freedom? To choose freedom. Imagine a man who's condemned to life in prison. Perhaps even for a crime he didn't commit. We've all seen those stories where people have been falsely accused. Maybe he's in life in prison, maybe even for something not even committed, he's given a full pardon. The prison cell door is unlocked, the key is turned, the door is open, he's free to leave, but he doesn't move. He's become used to his surroundings. He questions if he'll even be able to succeed outside with freedom after years of being behind bars. We even have these discussions when we go into our prison ministry. Sometimes these are real discussions. I don't know what I'll do. If he stays, dinner is just in a couple hours. Staying in the cell is more predictable. The routine is the same day in and day out. might seem like a place none of us would want to be, but you can actually become accustomed to a place of bondage. He's worked out a niche in the prison, though he's still in bondage. With freedom comes opportunity, opportunity of things that would be impossible behind prison walls. But he still has to walk out of the cell. He still has to get up and walk out of the cell. He has to leave the bars behind and exercise that freedom, right? Exercise the freedom. Someone's unlocked the door, but you've got to exercise the freedom, Jesus said, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Isn't that great to know? He's already unlocked the prison door. We've got to walk out. If Christ has set us free, we have a choice. We can live as his sons and daughters, freed from sin, freed from guilt. Isn't that great? Freed from guilt. 
freed from the tyranny of the course of this world, freed from hate, freed from self-righteous works, freed from ourselves. Aren't you glad you're freed from yourself? You know, wherever you go, you still take you with you, right? But not the bondage of ourself. Because we've got the flesh man and we've got the new spirit man. We know which one we were supposed to feed. Now, the Galatians, they had experienced freedom. They had been saved. Paul calls them brethren. They experienced freedom. We've been looking at the fact that they truly came into this wonderful new relationship, but they had turned away. They had turned back to this legalism works-based religion. They decided they wanted to go back to the prison cell of bondage. Instead of the freedom of Jesus Christ, they were opting for the routine of the Mosaic law. I want to go back under Mosaic law. Even though they hadn't even been under Mosaic law, it was these Jewish teachers who had come up that were not Christ followers, but were law followers that had told them, hey, you need to follow the law of Moses or you can't be saved. They were returning to the cell that Christ had opened. Once again, they were going to make the cell of bondage their home. Church, Jesus did not come and die he did not come and die to make us or the Galatians followers of Moses. Did you hear that? He did not come and die to make us followers of Moses. Moses was a follower of Jesus. Abraham was a follower of Jesus. He did not come to make us followers of Mosaic law. He didn't come to make us Israelites. He didn't come to make us the sons and daughters of David although we'll spend eternity with David. And I can't wait to meet David, and I can't wait to meet Moses, but we're not followers of those men. They were sinners saved by grace just like us. He came to set us free. Free to walk in newness of life. That's why I've titled, if you're taking notes this morning, Choose Freedom. God gives us a free will, doesn't he? To make choices. Adam and Eve had a free will. Hey, you can eat it, but you can't eat that. But if you choose to, heavy consequences. But Jesus came to deliver us from those consequences. Now, preparing, sometimes when I'm preparing for a study, God will give me a tangible object lesson, like real-life object lesson, that helps me grasp uh, what the Spirit is communicating in the Scripture. And this week was one of those times for me. Uh, When I study the scripture, and then George is going to go and be a full-time pastor now, not just a missions pastor, but uh, not ju- I don't mean just a missions pastor, but I mean his focus will not be only on missions, like my focus is multiple here. My number one focus in the ministry is the teaching and communication of God's word. That's my number one focus. But I have a lot of other focuses. If you're sick, I want to pray over you. If there's need counsel, there's other things. But when I'm studying, there's typically two ways uh, that I study to prepare to teach on a topic or or to teach on a specific passage of Scripture. One, if I'm in my office, I'll have a stack of books. I have commentaries. I have Greek stuff, Hebrew stuff, software stuff, website stuff, laptop stuff, right? That's the in the almost academic, if you will, part of studying. Because Paul said to study to show yourself proof. You have to work at it. That part is... Part of it. The other part, though, and it's related, uh, but it's a little different, is I'll just have my Bible and a notebook and not another thing and just start reading it and reread it 
and have God just, and isn't it nice in this day and age, I have no electronics on at that time. Bible, pen, paper. I'm like back in 1850 and it feels good. You know, and just writing as the Lord shows things. I'll reread the text. I just underline and all that good stuff. And so that's the other way that I'll study. And typically I do both. Typically I do both in any preparation of study. But uh, this past week, uh, Monday through Wednesday, I was in the western part of the state with uh, a group of Calvary Chapel pastors from all over the state. We get together uh, every October. And as we were getting together, uh, we, we'd spent, you know, long nights till 11 o'clock at night uh, just going through things, encouraging each other, praying, talking about things for 2017. And uh, we had a break on, which day was it? Tuesday, in the middle of the day. So I had a few hours break. And some guys were going to go fish, and some guys were going to go nap, and some guys were going to, you know, just kind of read on their own and uh, catch up on finally reading a book that they intended to read all year and still had not read. Anyone else like that, right? I have like a 10 of those, right? I'm going to finally read this. So uh, I actually, I had something more important. I had forgot my toothbrush. So I had to go to find, you know, you know pack and you think you got everything. So I'm like, I have to leave. I got to go off the property, go find the Kroger because I knew where one was. And so and we're up at Smith Mountain Lake and I go to get, uh, I go to find uh, a toothbrush. Very important thing. Um, and when I go out, I said, I'll go ahead and gas up because we're leaving, leave the next day. I can get, knock that out, get the car gassed up. And for some reason I had, I didn't know why I did it. It must've been a habit. I grabbed my Bible and my notebook and threw it in the car. I have no idea why I grabbed my Bible and my notebook and threw it in the car because I was only going to run these errands and I was going to come back and maybe read or something under a tree or something uh, and, um, down near the lake. And so I, I decided I'm going to ride a little past the Kroger here because I'm just going to explore for just a minute. I'm uh, just going to see what else. I've been up there numerous times. What else is a little further down the lake? And I ride by a little further. I go by, and I didn't know it was the birthplace of Booker T. Washington. I had no idea. Now, I knew he was born in Virginia. I know he went to Hampton University. But I had no idea that just past the Kroger, about a mile down, you couldn't see it. Now, I like history, so this, I'm the wrong guy to run upon this because uh, I'm like, I've got a break. There's no one holding me back here. I'm going in this. I pull in. There's not like but maybe one other car in the entire parking lot. It was a day like yesterday. Beautiful sunny day. Uh, by the way, I took the picture up on the left. That's Booker T. When he was older, speaking, he went all over the country and around the world speaking, um, and got you know he was used in a great way. Uh, that hit, that was him younger. But he was born there on land that I had no idea that was where the land. I'd heard of the town, but I didn't know where it was in Virginia. For all I knew, it was up in Winchester area, or you know I just had no idea. So I said, birthplace of Booker T. Washington. I pull in there. And on my mind, I'm meditating on Galatians and freedom. Now get this. I'm meditating on Galatians and freedom. God made me lose my toothbrush to leave the property to find a location that I didn't know was there. So I pull in there, and so I I'm, I'm pull up, and I'm going to walk around the property. And I start reading stuff, and then I go in the back where that actually was right here was the slave quarters where he grew up, right there. The actual original house, the foundations of it are right here. It's gone. 
the, the, the house that was the plantation house is no longer there, but the slave house still is there. Interesting, huh? The slave house is still there. After he was born, that's where he grew up. I had no idea where the land was. So I'm just walking. I have to tell you, it felt a little bit to me because there was no one there. I was just walking the property all by myself. No one else was there. I'm walking around. You can see there's not a single person. I'm walking around the property just talking to God. And I had this just not a good feeling like when I was in the Holocaust Museum over in Israel. I was like, how could people do this to other people? That was the feeling I had. I was like, Lord, why, why does this happen? Why was there 400 years of slavery in Egypt? Why was there this? Why was there that? And I, and I really did, I, I just had a heavy heart as walking. But then, uh, a little bit later, a guy comes up to me. who's the park ranger. He's got like gray beard. I asked him if he was from, I asked him if he was from there because I thought he might have been related. Because if you grew up in that area, there would be only so many families that would be descendants of uh, uh, the slaves that were there. But he wasn't. He said he was from another. But he gave me my own personal tour. He's just walking me around, just me and him. He's telling me about, and this, and I, just me and the park ranger, just telling me all about, because there's no one else but, them, but me and him. And God just kind of had us have a discussion. And I told him I was a pastor, and we talked about uh, that. And um, it just was one of those things that, uh, as I looked at it, Booker T. Washington, he left that when, when the Civil War ended. Uh, he and his mother, they were freed, and they moved to Malden, West Virginia. He went to Malden, West Virginia, and at Malden, he took his freedom really serious. He taught himself to read. He taught himself, all, he just started pouring into books. Then he went to Tawan's Hampton University. Did you know that, right? I'm sure you did that. So then he went to Hampton University, and then later he became the president of Tuskegee Institute because uh, he was hand-selected. They said, hey, we've got a guy who's super sharp. And uh, just a great speaker, a great leader. But he took that freedom, and I was reminded by the Lord that if you're given freedom, what are you going to do with it? And he did great things with it. And, and I had no idea. When I, was, I thought I was only up there for a pastor's conference. God said, while you're up there, there's a little place I want you to visit, but you have no idea it's there because you think you're going to get a toothbrush at Kroger. And I did get the toothbrush, by the way. But I was there, and this is a quote I read a long time ago. I love from Booker T. Washington. He said, I think I began learning a long, I, he said, I think I began learning long ago that those who are happiest are those who do the most for others. The freedom God gives us as Christians is to do things for others in the name of Jesus, right? It's no longer to live for ourselves. What an attitude of someone born in slavery to still say, I'm going to live my life for others, because we've been set free to help other people get set free. Amen? That's the whole reason, not just to keep freedom to ourselves. And I was just blessed to be there. I want to look this morning. Oh, I ended up, this is where I sat at the picnic table, and that's where I did my study. No computer, no laptop, just sitting there on the property. Because I was going to, remember, I didn't know why I grabbed my Bible and notebook, I had to go back to my car and get it. God says, I had you throw it in there. And I really sat there and actually thought about the study on the place where this gentleman was set free from slavery. And God says, you'll actually write a set free message on a place where he was set free. You know, Booker T only came back to that property one time. It was like seven years before he died, he came back. Only one time he came back. I think it was his granddaughter 
the, the park ranger told me who bought the property, and then it got it turned into a national monument. But um, it was just a, it was a blessing to uh, to think about freedom in the context of something real. Now I wished it wouldn't happen. I would you know you would say hey I wish that wasn't the case. But God uses real things. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. He uses real things to communicate real things. Amen. I want us to look briefly this morning at three connected uh, images that we just read from verses 21 to 31. Uh, three com- connected images that Paul references here. They're allegorical in nature, but they're really not allegories. Understand that. What Paul mentions, they are allegorical in nature, but they're really not allegories uh, because allegories are fictional stories. The true definition of an allegory is a fictional story that's meant to convey truth that's either hidden or mysterious, but then it's revealed in the, in the fictional story. What Paul writes here is not fictional. The people aren't fictional. The places aren't fictional. The time period's not fictional. It all happened. It's historical. But there was meaning that God hid in these historical things. Isn't that cool? For me, God hid some meaning in something that actually happened for me to do a study. Now, meaning is hidden from, hidden from us, but God reveals it to us in the real things. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed, and what Paul conveys here is new information. I mean, people that had read about Hagar, or read about Sarah, and read about the two sons, they didn't know these things until the Holy Spirit revealed them. Does that make sense? It was new revelation from the Holy Spirit to Paul about these actual events that took place. A couple thousand years earlier. In other words, God had sovereignly placed in the life of, or in the household of Abraham, he had sovereignly placed in the household of Abraham these pictures of the Old Covenant and New Covenant. Abraham never knew his family was living out a picture of the Old and New Covenant. He had no idea they were living out a future reference in the New Testament. In verse 21, Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, tell me, who, who, you who want to go back into the prison cell, right? He's like, I don't understand it, but you apparently want to go back under law. You want to go back into slavery. You want to go back into something. If Booker T. Washington never went back into slavery, he took his freedom and ran with it, right? He didn't go back into it. He said, well, you know, I'm not going to leave because this is the only land I know. You know there was people that thought that way. He said, this is the only land I know. I'm not going to leave. No, he said, I'm out of here. I'm going to do something with it, and I'm going to actually help a whole lot of other people. And the, the reality is that Jesus has done the same for us. He wants us to take the new covenant and live in the new covenant, not go back. The old covenant's important. We'll get to that, but it's not where we want to live. And Paul says here that the very law, though, he says, you, you who want to go under the law, do you not hear the law? He's like, if you, if you love the Torah, what is the Torah? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah is the first five books. It can also be inclusive of the entire New Testament, also called the Tanakh, which is the, the Hebrew word for the whole Old Testament. But he said, you who know the Torah or read the Torah, why do you want to go back under the Torah, back under the law, The Galatians, they had been coerced to go under the law. They had been manipulated to go under Levitical. They had circumcision, certain foods. You know, uh, it's not fun to go back under Levitical law. You know, my brother's here somewhere. You know, our family, we grew up in Annapolis, Maryland. 
we think a little bit of heaven is a crab cake sandwich. You know, it's just from where we're from. My brother is convinced that Old Bay was there on manna at the beginning of time. He thinks that's what they sprinkled on manna to make it even a little bit better or something. But, um, but under, if you go back under law, you can't have a crab cake sandwich because shellfish are forbidden under the Levitical foods. So, sorry, no crab cake sandwich. You can, have a, you can have a fish sandwich, but not a crab cake sandwich, which those are good too. But, but they had coerced into going back. And so Paul says, if you read the law, you've missed the freedom part that was actually in the very... You missed where God was speaking about freedom. And that's where the Holy Spirit speaks in the New Testament to kind of illuminate freedom signs that we were missing, that we weren't seeing. And now Paul, he doesn't give all the background here because it's assumed that the readers... The Galatians had already been told all about Genesis and the story of Abraham and everything that happened. Now, Paul himself probably would have taught them the whole Torah, so they had understood the story. He didn't have to go into every detail. When George said, I'm going to make the story short, there was other details he could have told that his wife would already know, but you wouldn't know. Well, Paul assumed that they knew of the whole background, so he didn't tell the whole story. But let me give you a little bit of the background for those of you that don't know, or maybe it's been a long time since you heard about the story of Abraham. You know, Abraham, remember, he was from a place called Ur. He had a wife named Sarai. His name, first, it wasn't Abraham, it was Abram, right? God calls him. He says, I want you to go to a land. Where is it? You'll find out when I get you there, right? What's the name of it? He didn't tell him, right? But he doesn't go all the way. Remember, he goes so far, and he, he, he kind of camps and waits till his, um, till Terah, uh, his... Um, his relative, anyway. His, he has to wait till he died. Then he goes to Canaan, right? So then he finally gets to Canaan, and he says, You're gonna, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Well, how's that going to be? Because we don't have any kids, and my wife can't have kids. Well, just hang in there. Gets to 50, no kids. 60, no kids. 70, no kids. He's, he's rolling along. He's like, uh, uh, I don't know, God, if you know how this works. But um, we're getting past childbearing years. And they had gone down to Egypt, and somewhere along the way, Sarah comes up with a plan. I got an Egyptian maidservant who, she's fertile, she can still have kids, and if we're, if we're ever going to be made of a nation, I, I've got it figured out. And Abraham's like, okay, you know, let's do that. <laughs> I don't know how he said it, but uh, <laughs> he goes along with this thing. So he goes along with it, and the whole story is not, you know, you know the Bible's true because it shows the warts of people, doesn't it? It's not all a pretty picture. It doesn't show that everything was perfect, and, you know, no, it shows sinners do dumb things. Even, even sinners that have been saved by grace do dumb things. And so Paul says that, you know the background, but he's like, but the, let me tell you the, the freedom aspect of it. Let me tell you about the two covenants that are taking place. You have two sons, if you're taking notes, two sons, and I've got to move quickly. Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael comes from Hagar. That was, that was the Egyptian maidservant. She was uh, Sarah's right-hand woman, if you will. She has a son. Abraham does have a son through Hagar, names him Ishmael. He has another son named Isaac. His name means what? Laughter. Joy. He's the, one, the son of their old age, but that would come later. Now, Ishmael, he was born because of Sarah's hatched plan. 
and Abraham's foolery to go along with it, right? He should have been leading at that time. He did not lead properly. He should have said, hey, time out. God said it. We'll have to wait for it. I don't think Hagar is the reason or the answer here. No, I'm not going to do that. But he foolishly goes along with her plan instead of leading and trusting God. And so Ishmael is born, but Ishmael, Paul conveys here, and I don't have time to go back through all the verses, but we read the whole context. Ishmael is a picture of works-based religion. Why? Well, it's a picture of vain efforts. It's what we come up with to make something work. Well, we'll kind of create a way to help God out. That's what it is. It's a picture of vain effort. The son of the bondwoman also not only is it a picture of vain works-based efforts because Ishmael was the work of Abraham and Sarah coming up with something that God did not give them. All the other world religions are man coming up with something that God did not give them. They've made them up themselves. Also, as the son of a bondwoman, what is a bondwoman, by the way? Well, uh, this bondwoman, she would be fully, she basically, uh, it's similar to slavery. Now, some would argue it was slavery. We'll get into it in just a few minutes when we look at the two women. I think it's actually a little bit different, and I'll explain why. But the, at the end of the day, uh, this bondwoman was an employee, if you will, of Abraham and Sarah specifically. And Ishmael, he was the biological son of Abraham, but he was also born as a servant into Abraham's household, not born as the heir. Now, Abraham, because he was a godly man, he actually makes Ishmael an heir anyway. If you know the rest of the story, he does give Ishmael inheritance. He does not treat him like just an employee or a slave. He makes him an heir because he does the right thing, right? He does the right thing. But in the culture of that day, if you were born like that to a concubine or a maidservant, you had no family heir rights, but you were in the household. Does that make sense? Isaac... Well, he, he wasn't the work of man. He was born as a miracle. Sarah was 90 years of age when she gave birth. Abraham was 100. Romans says he was as good um, as, good as dead. <laughs> That's what it says. The birth of Isaac was not in any way the plan of Abraham and Sarah. They would never have come up with God's plan of 90 and 100. They waited way longer than they would have ever wanted to wait. They would have not waited till that long. They would not have thought it was even humanly possible, which it wasn't. See, Isaac was God's supernatural plan, not the works of man, not a works-based religion. Isaac was an heir because God had brought him to them. Isaac's a foreshadow of another supernatural birth that would be to another woman that would be impossible unless God did the work in Bethlehem. Jesus also, and you look at uh, Isaac as a foreshadow, Isaac would someday lay down on an altar at his father's command and give up his life, although his life isn't taken. The last minute, remember, hand is stopped by the angel and says, lamb comes out, caught in a thicket. But another would come to that same, that Mount Moriah is where that would take place. Jesus would come to that same place called Jerusalem, and he would lay down at the Father's command, and he really would give his life. So Isaac was a foreshadow. Isaac was not the son of a bondservant, but he was the firstborn of Sarah, so he was an heir to the father. So first, he says, Paul says, we've got two sons. Second, we've got two women, Sarah and Hagar. Hagar was a bond 
woman or maidservant, as I mentioned, uh, let me define what that is a little bit. She was from Egypt, as the text tells us, and we know this from Genesis. Interestingly, she was from Egypt, and that's exactly where Abraham's descendants would be enslaved for 400 years, the same place she was from. Interesting, isn't it? She was no doubt poor when Abraham and Sarah met her. Why would she have uh, become a maidservant? Well, if you were from a poor area in the Middle East, um, and you said, I got no other means, can I bond myself for a... You ever heard of indentured servanthood? So you say, I'm going to indenture myself for the next seven years. You don't get wages, you just get food, clothing, you know. But if you got bonded into Abraham's household... It would be like a college kid that's in debt that's been eating ramen noodles for the last uh, five years uh, getting a job at IBM, right? Because Abraham took great care of his household. Everybody, it says, remember, he had so many servants that, you know, they went and fought against the kings uh, that, were, that had taken Sodom and Gomorrah. So she found that the family, the family of Abraham, while she was probably in Egypt, probably when they were down there, she says, hey, I, I, I have no means. Can I be a maidservant to her? And they said, yeah, come on board. And it's kind of like being hired, but not, no, there's no wages. You just are getting food and all the other things that come with the benefits of being under the household of Abraham. Now, it's interesting, though. If you are a bondservant, even if you're a bondservant in the most beautiful of circumstances, you still know you're a bondservant, right? right, right. And that still doesn't feel good to people. Because freedom is a mindset, isn't it? We can feel it. It's a mindset. Um, if you can help it at all, you know, you, um, I'll give you an example of a mindset. Uh, I'm looking, my, I've got two cars in the shop right now. Anyone ever had that time? Yeah. Both of them are in the shop. Thankfully, I have a loaner for one. The other one is in the shop. And, um, and thankfully, yesterday I found out my 1100 AC job is under full warranty. Not a single penny I have to pay for that. That was God. Literally, I walked and prayed and said, Lord, I'm, this is not good. You know, so I pray, come back, get on the phone, call the guy. He goes, yeah, you're two months out of warranty, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. That was just the Lord. But I, I haven't had a car payment in five years, and I don't want a car payment. I really don't want a car payment. A lot of cars look really attractive to me, but then I don't want a car payment. Um, I don't want a car payment because I feel like I'm under bondage again. That payment book is like this thick. Now it's 72 months is the norm or something like that. And I don't want it. Because even though it's just paper, I feel it in my mind. And I understand now, because Proverbs 22.7 says, the borrower is slave to the lender. You can be in a great house with a great guy like Abraham, but still you're bonded for seven years or six years, and you still feel like you're under that thick payment book. And you can't wait to be totally free. And I can see now how people want to get out of their house and move into tiny houses. The whole family can't even move around the kitchen and stuff like that. You've seen this show, The Tiny House? I can see how people want to get into these things. They're like, man, we get rid of a $1,000 mortgage, and all of a sudden, we're free. Even though they look like they're in a cell, but they feel free. Because freedom's in the mind, isn't it? They feel free, they feel more free in a tiny house than they feel in a huge house because they feel the paper mortgage in their head or something. Is that my making sense? Yes, 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 yes. And I understand. People, they become bond servants to the stuff to fill the house. 
They become bond servants to the mortgage. They become bond servants to the high utility bill. They become bond servants to the yard. They become bond servants to the stuff in the yard. They become bond servants to the very stuff they thought would make them happy. Freedom of movement doesn't free our mind, does it? No. But then there was the other woman, Sarah. She, she didn't have a functional, just a functional role. She was the bride. You see the difference? She had a functional role. She was the bride of Abraham. She was the love of Abraham's life. She was his bride. She wasn't just in a, a, a supportive role. She was Abraham's right hand. And these two women, one was chosen by God to give birth to the promise. The other one was the effort. Let's figure out a way. Let's make it work. And then the last thing Paul talks about, these two covenants, that all these pictures speak of two covenants. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses, uh, 42, verse 6, it says, The Lord have called you in righteous, I, the Lord, have called you in righteous. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Did you know that Jesus wasn't just going to fulfill the covenant? According to Isaiah 42 there, Jesus would be the covenant. Did you hear that? He said, I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. Who had brought the gospel to the Gentiles? Paul. Paul was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Who were the Gentiles in this specific case? The Galatians. They had been brought a new covenant and the actual mediator of the covenant, and in fact, the covenant itself, Jesus Christ, and they had turned away from the covenant to go back to bondage. This is a picture of going back to Egypt. And you remember the Israelites? They were, they were taken out of the land of Egypt, and they wanted to go back there. And Paul's like, no, no. You have been brought under the new covenant. That's where you want to find your peace. That's where you want to find your rest. You don't want to go back to try and earn God's favor. You can't earn God's favor, by the way. He is not impressed that you're at church today. Did you know that? He, he is not up and say, wow, it's amazing what you did today. You got out of bed and went to church. I have not seen faithfulness like this since Abraham. He's not impressed that we're here. Because he knows that somewhere, sometime already today, you've sinned. And his, his standard is perfection, not the fact that we made it here. You might be better than our neighbor, at least in our minds, right? But we're not. The new covenant is that it's all God's grace, right? It's his grace. I'm not earning favor by preaching today. I'm not getting a, a little addition to the mansion in heaven this morning. It's just grace, right? We're just to be under the new covenant to be used by him. I want to read uh, Andrew Murray. I think you read, why didn't he write this? 18, we're almost done here, but he wrote this in 1898. Andrew Murray, by the way, as a side note about Andrew Murray. Any of you ever heard of Andrew Murray? When I pray for revival... We need to see what Andrew Murray saw. The revival that started in the United States, went over to Scotland, across Europe, went down through Africa, all the way down through Africa. By the time he got to South Africa, Andrew Murray, I can't remember how long he was pastoring there, but he was praying for years. I want to say 13, but don't quote me on that. I don't remember the exact year. I want to say 13. He was praying that God would raise up men that would love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He had a bunch of men that would come to church, 
they just come to church. And he was praying that one of them, just one of them would be a full-time worker for God. For all those years, I want to say it was 13, did you know that he did not have one single man step forward and be a full-time servant for Christ? Not one. Revival came, and 25 men in one month became full-time, most of them pastors. 25 men in one month. They were the same guys that were sitting there that he was constantly saying, come further in the Lord, come further in the Lord. But that was revival. Well, he understood the new covenant. He wrote a little uh, book here called The Two Covenants. He wrote it a long time ago. And let me read to you from um, uh, his, his overview of these new covenants. I think it'll really help you understand what we just read in Galatians. He says this, and if you've ever wondered about these two covenants, why two covenants, how do they interact, he says it as succinctly as anyone I've ever heard write it. He says this, he goes, the two covenants, these covenants indicate two stages in God's dealing with man and two ways of our serving God, a lower or elementary one in preparation and promise and a higher and more advanced one of fulfillment and possession. Did you hear that? As the true excellency of the second is opened up to us, we can spiritually enter into what God has prepared for us. Let us try to understand why there should have been two covenants, neither less nor more. Does that make sense? He said it had to be two. It couldn't be one, it couldn't be three. He goes on, he explains why it had to be two covenants from the province of God. The reason for the two covenants is that in any interaction between God and man, there are two parties. And each must have the opportunity to prove what his part in the covenant is. And um, in the old covenant, man was given the opportunity to prove what he could do. We know how that went, right? In the old covenant, man was given his opportunity to prove what he could do, and with the aid of all the means of grace that God could bestow, that covenant ended in man proving his unfaithfulness and failure. In the new covenant, God is to prove what he can do with man. And as unfaithful and feeble as he is, and when he is allowed and trusted to do all the work, the old covenant, one was dependent on man's obedience on which he would break and did break. The new covenant is one which God has promised shall never be broken, for he himself keeps it, ensures it, ensures our keeping. He makes it an everlasting covenant. Does that make sense? He said it had to be two covenants because the old covenant had to show man give his shot, and he failed. The new covenant was God gives his shot, and it was Jesus, and he paid all the price. That's it. And that's why he goes on to say, Brother, we're not children of the bondwoman. We're children of the free. See, Jesus, he is the new covenant. He's the old covenant, too, just so you know. Jesus is the old covenant. He's the new covenant, just as he's God and he's man, 100% God, 100% man. He He is the old covenant. He is the new covenant. But at the same time, he's what the scriptures call, he's the better covenant. He's the better covenant. But there are clearly two covenants. And why are these two, co- two covenants? Well, we see these two places. You know, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And then we have Jerusalem, which is above. Why are these two covenants? Isaac, Isaac was proof of God's promise. But Jesus wasn't the proof of God's promise. Jesus was the promise. Isaac was the proof of the promise, and Jesus was the promise. Um, In the Old Covenant, he speaks of Mount Sinai. Why does he speak of Mount Sinai? Well, Mount Sinai is where the law was given. Remember Moses, when the law was given, a picture of the fact when Moses slams the commandments and breaks them, 
It's a picture of the fact that all of humankind has broken the commandments, right? So the old covenant, right there with the breaking of the law at, the, at Mount Sinai, when the commandments are broken, it's a picture that man already will break the old covenant. But Jesus comes along, and he brings the new covenant. And where does he die on the cross? In Jerusalem, right? He's not at Mount Sinai. He's not down in Arabia. He dies in Jerusalem. And he rises from the dead where? In Jerusalem. Up into heaven, right from Jerusalem. That's like there's a straight elevator shaft from Jerusalem to heaven. Is that cool or what? Because he goes right up into heaven, and eventually the Bible says a new Jerusalem is actually comes straight down out of heaven, right where the other Jerusalem is. Why is this important? Well, those of us who have been saved, we've asked Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, one of the new covenant. According to Philippians 3.20, we're called citizens of heaven. Under the new covenant, guess where your real homeland is? It's in heaven. Your real homeland is in heaven. Your real homeland is not Virginia. Your real homeland is not America. If the election has bummed you out, you've got good news. This actually is not your home. Isn't that good to know? It's not your home. I'm going to teach a message on that next week about the kingdom of God. And I think it will encourage you prior to election day that this isn't really your home. We have a new covenant. We have a promised land. And this is what Paul says, Brethren, we are children of the bond, not children of the bondwoman, but children of the free. We have this freedom from Jesus. But I want to close with a, with a statement. Um, uh, I can't even remember who wrote this, but it's a quote. He says, There is no peace in the borderlands. The halfway Christian is a torment to himself and a benefit to no others. You can't live between the two covenants. Let me read that again. There is no peace in the borderlands. The halfway Christian is a torment to himself and a benefit to no others. Trying to live by law and grace will never work. You can only live under the new covenant and only be set free, walk out of the prison, and live under the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you indeed have set us free. That, uh, Lord, you and you alone are the better covenant. Lord, we're not saved because of works. We're saved because of calling upon the name of the Lord. And we thank you this morning, Lord, that you have seen fit to gather us. Each and every person here was here not by accident, but by your own sovereign will, to speak to us, to, Lord, to draw us nearer to you. We thank you, Jesus, for this new life. You've called us to walk in newness of life, that we do not have to walk in the bondage of our own guilt and shame and our past. But, Lord, you give us living water that refreshes day after day after day. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.